With more than 500 programs a year, there is never a dull moment at the Commonwealth Club. If you're a fan of this podcast and you like hearing new and provocative discussions with the most interesting people in the world, consider showing your support by joining the Commonwealth Club and ensuring that the conversations never end. Visit commonwealthclub.org special to get special rates on membership. Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's virtual program at the Commonwealth Club of California. My name is Anthony Wright. I'm the Executive Director of Health Access California, the statewide healthcare consumer advocacy coalition, and I'm excited to be moderating this program. I'm so pleased to be joined by HuffPost correspondent Jonathan Cohn to discuss his new book, The Ten-Year War, Obamacare and the Unfinished Crusade for Universal Coverage. As an author and a journalist, Jonathan has spent his career focusing on social welfare and healthcare policy. He is consistently regarded as one of the leading experts on healthcare because of his criticisms and engagement with healthcare politics and policy. The 10-year war draws from interviews, diaries, emails, and memos to explain the complex history of how Obamacare, or the Affordable Care Act, came to be. The ACA was the most expansive piece of legislation advocating for healthcare accessibility since 1965, yet it remains divisive and contentious issue of between party lines. Expanding healthcare coverage has been a long process in the United States, but at the end of the day, Cohn reminds us that we all want thing. Oh, we all want one thing: affordable, accessible healthcare. We'll be discussing a lot in the next hour, and I want your questions too. If you're watching along with us, please put your questions in the text chat on YouTube, and we'll be getting to them later in the program. Thank you for joining us. And now, thank you, uh, Jonathan, for being here. It's great to see you. Congratulations on the new book. I read it. it, it it's, a, it's a great read. Um, how, is, how is the book tour going? Uh, well, first of all, uh, I want to thank the uh, Commonwealth Club. It, it's, I, I, this is, I, I'm so excited to be in California virtually. I only wish I were in California physically. Um, I always like coming out to California. I've spent a lot of time out there, a lot of time reporting in California, um, because you cannot tell the story of healthcare in America or the Affordable Care Act uh, without talking about California. Um, it, you know, uh, California is one of a small handful of states that where officials did exactly what the architects of the law hoped they would do, which is they embraced the program, they set up the architecture early, and, and really have enthusiastically promoted it and given a very interesting window that you don't see and how the program works that you don't see in every other state. And I just have to say, Anthony, I'm, I'm just, I'm excited to be here with you. Um, we've been talking about this on social media, but, and I don't actually know when we first met, but uh, you are one of the people who introduced me to healthcare in California uh, and has taught me so much about it. And I always appreciated about you in particular was that you're one of the very few people who can talk about healthcare from the perspective of what it's like on the ground, but then also working, you know, with the legislatures. And I use that plural because I know, and, and we've actually bumped into each other both in Sacramento and in Washington D.C. So I'm, I'm just, I'm excited to be here in California on the virtual tour. It's going well. Um, people are interested in this, and and and, and obviously, uh, it's an interesting time. One thing about the book I, I tried to convey is that. This isn't simply a book about healthcare. It's about American politics and can we still govern ourselves? And there was definitely an, a, a layer of the book that was very explicitly addressed towards 
uh, progressive politicians saying this is what it would take to legislate again if, you know, next time there's a president and a Congress who are interested in passing these kinds of laws, and lo and behold, here we are. So uh, it's been going well. It's timely. It's very interesting. Yeah, no, and I mean, why don't we start with that, which is, um, I know some of our audience is probably health wonks like me, people who have followed the ACA through its perils of Pauline adventures, through um, multiple uh, uh, potential repeals and fights in either direction. But maybe you can make the case of why somebody should read this book if they don't have a particular interest in healthcare. Why should somebody... Uh, and then, of course, then we'll dive into the, the good healthcare stuff as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I think a lot about the day that uh, President Obama signed the Affordable Care Act. So that's uh, March 23rd, 2010. So we're actually, we're coming up on the 11th anniversary of, of when my 10-year war began, which, well, sort of. Anyway, the timing gets a little weird, but we are coming up on that anniversary and I remember very distinctly, and I talk about this in the book, uh, one of the lines he used in his speech was, uh, he said something to the effect of, you know, we are a country that that deals with hard problems. You know, we take on the big issues and we solve them collectively. And and if you know Obama or if you watched Obama, you know that that was, that was really kind of core to his being. I mean, that was, that was his whole MO as president was, I'm going to prove we as a country can do these big things. We do big things, yes. Yeah. You know, I think it's kind of an open question. And 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 I wanted to use the healthcare fight to kind of ask the question, can we actually still do that? Or is American politics so broken between polarization, uh, the way our media dynamics work, that we're st- you know, are we still able to govern ourselves? Can we still do big things? I mean, the ACA barely became law. You were just talking about this in your death experiences, and we can get into that in a second. Um, that it was really hard to pull that off. It's not clear to me you still can pull things like that off. It took almost a perfect constellation of forces, and yet you look at other issues. I mean, just to pick one, we have a climate problem that absolutely is dire and needs big and needs a big solution to it. And 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 you know, I, I worry whether we can actually do that. Yeah. No, I think that uh, it. I always thought that the passage of the Affordable Care Act was a hope against fighting against cynicism, that um, that there's just so much cynicism about government in general and specifically about whether things can be solved. And that's and and so if we could prove that progress was possible, then that opens up the, the space on healthcare and on a host of other issues. But is there something unique about healthcare? I, I mean, I guess. You know, one of the things that you write about in the book is is both the passage of the ACA and then the backlash to it with regard to both, you know, in midterms and such. Do you think it would have been different if if President Obama said his next big issue after the, you know, the, the economic rescue in, in 2010 was another issue, was climate change, was immigration reform, was one of the other big issues that we have to deal with? Or is there something about health care that is compelling enough that most of our elections in the last couple of decades have had at least healthcare as a major component of it. Yeah. So I, I, I think I, I kind of could answer that in one of two ways. And I guess I think there's a kind of two sides to that answer. So the first side is yeah, absolutely healthcare is unique. And, and you know that better than anybody I know. The politics of healthcare are just incredibly complex. 
because you are, first of all, you're dealing with all the usual divides in America, liberal versus conservative, spending versus less spending, more regulation. All of those issues are there. Um, it's very personal. People feel this very intensely. Um, when the debate moves from the abstract to the specific, you know, from the slogans in a campaign to actually writing legislation, everybody at home, when they tune in, immediately zooms in on, what is this going to mean for me and my family if and when we need medical care? And that's, a, and, and that's just an incredibly, people are going to have strong feelings about that. And then on top of that all, and I think this is the part that really makes it tough and has historically been such a big impediment to major reforms, is the fact that there is this massive industry deeply invested in the status quo that has grown up and, and arranged its entire financial being around the way our current insurance system works. And no matter how smart, no matter how you design a healthcare reform plan, it's going to involve moving money around. And it might be, you know, every move might make sense, but that doesn't mean that the money, you know, you're eventually you're taking money from one place and you're putting it somewhere else. And where you take that money from, those people are not going to be happy about it. So that is makes it very, very complicated. I will say one thing, because this is actually comes up in the book, um, was, you know, could he have done another issue instead of healthcare? And of course, there was a big debate inside the White House over that very question. Um, there was a debate. Now, there were sort of two questions, which was, number one, do you do a big healthcare plan right away, or do you kind of do a down payment and circle back to it? Which is what most of... Uh, well, it's hard to say most, but certainly a number of very influential Obama advisors wanted to do. Among them, actually, Joe Biden. Joe Biden, you know, he thought this was going to be a political quagmire and was among those urging Obama not to jump into that. And then there was a second question of, well, you have these other priorities. You know, you want to do immigration. You want to do financial reform. You want to do climate. And now, of course, Obama, being Obama and, and you know, extremely ambitious and I dare say confident, for better or worse, um, his answer was, well, of course, we're going to do healthcare, And of course, we're also going to do climate. And in fact, people forget 2009, the first half of the year, they were also pushing a very ambitious climate bill, um, which did not pass. And, 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 and I think the reason, you know, it, I, I, I always feel I, this is actually in the book. I keep doing this because, you know, you write a long book, you leave lots of material out. But I remember talking to someone who was on the healthcare team. And I don't actually remember, I'm not saying who it is because I partly don't remember which one told me this. But I remember them saying that afterwards, you know, so they pass healthcare reform, 2010 midterms, they, they get the shellacking, right? Really big backlash. And everyone's like, wow, that was, a, that was exactly the political quagmire it was supposed to be. And one of the healthcare people said they always kind of had to kind of look down when they passed someone in the White House who was working on climate because they felt so bad, like that was it for climate. And, you know, you know, you, you can imagine if they've done a climate bill, could they have passed that instead? And I don't think they could have. And this gets to a, another theme in the book, which is that, and, and Anthony, you were part of this, literally, so you know all about this. One of the reasons they did succeed, I think, one of the reasons Democrats were able to pass the Affordable Care Act is that they spent 10, 15 years preparing to pass the Affordable Care Act. And by the time Obama gets elected, they had a consensus. They'd lined up the interest groups within the Democratic caucus. Everyone was kind of on the same page. And obviously, it was still contentious, and they almost failed. But there was just, they were ready to go in a way. I don't think they were ready on climate yet. They had not, just they weren't there. It was a newer issue in part, right? I mean, 
been doing healthcare for a hundred years. So that's my very complicated long answer to that, but there you go. Yeah. No, and I think it's very relevant to the current issue because, you know, one of those uh, members that we needed the vote for was Joe Manchin, was people like Senator Joe Manchin of a cold state. Um, and uh, people forget that of those 60 members that we, that the Democrats had um, in 2010 were some, uh, some senators from some vi- states that we would only dream to have votes from now states from the Dakotas, you know, senators from the Dakotas, from Arkansas, from Louisiana, Louisiana. I mean, and so it is, uh, that does change the dynamics. I do appreciate how much your original reporting in the new Republic about the sort of the TikTok of sort of the passage within the white house. And then in, in the book, you had this notion of how much president Obama really uh, moved through the, to continue to push the Affordable Care Act in at least three near-death experiences before it was passed, and um, you, uh, and he still kept going even against the wishes of his advisors. And I think you have a great quote by one aide that says, uh, "Where President Obama says, well, 'Well, I'm feeling lucky,' and the aide just is mystified that he's doing all this work because apparently the president feels lucky." <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that was so. There, there were, there were. I actually realized after my re-reporting, there were four of the what I would call the near-death experiences during 2009, 2010. That would have been the second one. So, so well, the first one was when they first started, and he had the advisors saying, "Don't do this." The second, and this is the one you're referring to, uh, comes in August of 2009, July, August sort of spans the couple weeks in there. And, um, and this is when the Tea Party explodes. And, and, and people who were around then or paying attention may remember what happens is, you know, every, there are five committees working on health care. Four of them are basically done and won. The Senate Finance Committee is run by Max Baucus from Montana, and he's trying to get Republicans on board. And it just keeps dragging on and dragging on. And there's this controversy over death panels. And the next thing you know, Democrats are going home to district meetings, and there's Tea Party protests everywhere, and the place explodes. The poll numbers are sinking, and there's uh, there's you know there's a couple meetings, and one in particular, which is what you were just describing, in the Oval Office, where advisors are basically saying, you know, David Axelrod's, and the Axelrod at this point is pushing against doing healthcare, but he's like, you got to know these poll numbers look really bad, and Rahm Emanuel was in fact saying, uh, maybe it's time to he because he always thought, I mean. To be fair to Rahm Emanuel, he'd been around in the Clinton White House and remembered how damaging it had been back then. He's like, I think you need to kind of back off. And and, and Obama says, you know, well, I feel lucky. And 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 some of his aides are a little mystified by that. Um, and uh, but they did, and they kept going. And there's there's you know two more moments like that later on. And uh, you know, I, it was interesting for me. And, and Anthony, you you work in politics, so I, I'm curious. You may have thoughts on this too. Something I changed my mind about in reporting the book. I don't know if I changed my mind, but, you know, I do a policy reporter, right? So I like, I'm always thinking of big ideas. Okay, this is the idea that works. It doesn't. And these are the big political forces shaping it. And it was really kind of in re-interviewing people and going through notes and reading memos. It really kind of hit me how important individuals are to this story. I mean, that, you know, I think if you rerun the history of the AC, the entire history of the book, and you pick out key characters and you replace them with someone else, you may get a different ending. Like, I think you put in a different president in the Oval Office for Obama, I'm not sure it gets across the finish line. And I'd say the same thing, for example, about changing out the Speaker of the House and Nancy Pelosi, uh, who uh, is widely acknowledged to have done 
basically miracle work in saving uh, at, you know, at, at the end when it really looked like it had collapsed. So the role of individuals in particular, you know, the, the ability to have leaders who are just, who have, who have, you know, kind of steely nerves, you know, believe, you know, conviction, and actually are good at, you know, getting votes. That's like a skill. And again, you know way more about this than I do. Like, that's important. Yeah, no, it's a, it's an, it's, a, it's again one of those things why I think the book is as much of a, a contribution to the world of political science as it is to health policy because it it is the question of is it these basic institutional changes and you know you talk about some of the association pol- politics where you know where are the hospitals or the drug companies going to be what kind of deal will they cut and how much can a leader um, make a deal without the membership. Um, revolting, um, you know, whether it's on the labor side, whether it's on the industry side, or whether it's among, you know, the various other groups, including the elected leaders themselves. I think that, I, I think your book is very good about describing the, those tensions. Um, but I do think that there's some fundamental um, driving forces as well. So it's it's not the great man theory of, of, of history, but it's, or woman theory in the case of, you know, we're virtually in San Francisco and Speaker Pelosi uh, is here. You give a section to Speaker Pelosi, and so I, I, I would, I, I don't know if you could talk a little bit more about her contribution, because I do remember the moment after Senator Kennedy uh, passed away, the election um, re- replaced him with a Republican, and uh, remember being on the Hill and thinking, uh, this bill was in trouble. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, just to set the scene for people who, who don't remember it so well, and, and you and I obviously remember it very well, because it was a very emotional moment. I mean, they've been doing this for almost a year. It's January in the middle, you know, towards the end, Ted Kennedy, who's really like the patron saint of universal health care. Right. Um, and and had, had had willed this had actually from the grave sent a letter to Obama. I mean, he'd written a letter to Obama before he died that Obama read in a national address to kind of galvanize the Democrats to see it through to the end. And then in the special election for his seat in Massachusetts, right, you know, which is as liberal as California, like you don't expect a Democrat to lose an election. And and, in one of the just great political errors, own goals of history, the Democrats below it, a Republican gets the seat. Now the Democrats don't have 60 seats in the Senate. They can't pass a bill that, you know, the normal, you know, the normal route. And it becomes very clear there's exactly one way to get over the line, which is this, there was a Senate bill and there was a House bill. The House members hated the Senate bill. Senate members, I don't know that they, they loved the Senate bill, but it's what they thought they could pass. And they didn't think they could get anywhere close to the House bill. They'd been hammering out, trying to find a compromise. They'd almost gotten there. And now that's all blown up. And basically the only way to do this is to have the House just pass the Senate bill and then do some after, you know, make some modifications afterwards. And well, you know, the, the, the Democrats, the House Democrats are not going to do this. And, and, and they are they are just not there. And, and, you know, I remember talking to people and I heard wild numbers. I mean, some were like, well, I think a whip count will show they're about Democrats are about 30 votes short of what they need. I remember someone telling me they were 50 votes short, but they whatever it was, it was a lot of votes. And Pelosi, interestingly, <laughs> you know, Basically, when she's like initially, when she's like meeting with Obama or she's meeting with Harry Reid, the Senate, she's like, "We can't do the Senate bill," and they're like, "Well, okay, you got another idea?" She's like, "No, we're going to do it." She just won't, you know. And and it was this very interesting game that I think later I I sort of concluded, and I've asked a lot of people this. I think she sort of felt like it was her institutional duty to say as the head of the House Democrats, 
we will not just pass the Senate bill. And I think she was partly doing that to show her own members she was fighting for them. Because I think she has a very sophisticated sense of her caucus. And, and she does bring them around. And it was actually, you know, the story of how Nancy Pelosi brings around the Democrats. It's, the, the fact that she brought them around is very well known. But what I really didn't know before so well was how she brought them around. Um, and some of that's been out there. There have been some details. There's a great um, biography of uh, Nancy Pelosi by Molly Ball, which I recommend to people, by the way, um, which had a lot of really great insights. Um, with my reporting, uh, there were sort of two stories that really kind of stood out uh, to me that I remember. So one is something I actually heard from uh, Chris Murphy, who you know is now a Senate, a Democratic senator from Connecticut. But at the time, he was in the House. And he described to me how his feeling was he always wanted to move forward. He didn't want to give up on health care reform. But he was young, he was junior, and he was very liberal. And he didn't feel like, he didn't think, he didn't know if it could happen. And he was kind of ready to like, as he put it to me, he was like, if, if, I, if I had been told it was done, I would have basically said, okay. And according to him, there was a big caucus meeting. And basically, a bunch of Democrats are getting up. This is a disaster. We're going to get killed in the midterms. We need to turn back. And basically, Pelosi says, I heard all of you. I'm aware of your, you know, situation, and we're we are not turning back. And according to and, and a quote from Murphy, I don't have it on the top of my head, but it was something to the effect of she just sheer will, basically, you know, wouldn't let it happen. And then the other story, which is from a little earlier, but I think speaks to how Pelosi operates, is she's in a meeting with a congressman from Wisconsin, Wisconsin, as we like to say in my part of the country, and. Um, uh, uh, apologies to my Wisconsin friends for that, for that terrible impersonation of your accent. Um, uh, uh, and he's upset about a, a, an issue that has to do with like regional funding formulas, which is like, just to say the word makes most readers go to sleep. But as Anthony, as you know, again, so well, it's like, these are the kinds of issues that rip these bills apart because they, the real dollars attach them and people feel strongly. And at some point he basically gets up and says, I'm done. I'm not going to vote for this. And Pelosi walks and sort of positions herself physically between the door and the congressman. And she clasps him by the hand. And she says, you're not leaving until I've made my full pitch. You're going to sit down and you're going to listen to me because this is too important. And, you know, what are you going to do? You're going to run over the Speaker of the House? No. So he goes and he sits back down and he listens. And and there was some more negotiation, but the upshot is he does end up voting for the bill. And I, I just think, you know, it was that attention to sort of, you know, her members and also, you know, attention to detail. One little thing that I'd always heard about her and is that she remembers if you've had a family member die, if you're a member of Congress, she makes a point that the next when the holidays come up, she writes a personal handwritten note just saying she's thinking of you and she knows what a hard time is. And I, and I think, you know, you think in terms of politics, like the, 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 the huge things, I mean, like a leader who thinks to do that, who knows how to do that, like that is... That is a skill, and I think it explains why she's able. She was able to get things done. No, I, um, you know, there's a certainly she's you know on that list of like people that it would it would not have passed without her. There's other California Congress members that we should note. You know, uh, the, the chairman of various committees, uh, Henry Waxman, George Miller, Pete Stark, and also on the leadership team of uh, uh, Congress member Javier Becerra, who. Now Does he have a, a job now? A Isn't role. he doing something new now or something? Yes. Um, you know, currently um, pending for our HHS secretary. And obviously he um, 
has led the fight. And so let's continue on the list of the nine lives of the ACA, although I, I, I think the, the count has gone well past the nine lives of like past its passage. You know, one of the issues was a, a legal challenge and uh, Becerra has been active in the efforts around that. You know, talk about how, why was there, why was this a 10 year war? Why did the, usually when a bill passes, that's the end of it or is it? Yeah. I mean, you know, you you wouldn't, I don't think anybody expected that just magically, you know, Obama would sign it and we'd snap our fingers and the fight would go away. Nobody thought that. However, I do think there was an expectation. I certainly had this expectation and I was very wrong about this. I certainly expected, and I think most people expected, that the temperature would come down and that it would start to become part of the landscape pretty quickly. And there would be arguments over it. And especially initially, Republicans would use it to try to, you know, run against it so that, you know, you know look what this horrible thing the Democrats did, vote for us. Um, but I think the assumption was within a year or two, that would all subside and we'd get to a kind of more of a normal situation like we like we still see today, say, with Medicare, where certainly conservatives uh, there's a there's a core of conservatives who actually do want to get rid of the program or transform it into something very different. Um, and then there's a much there's a you know that's part of the Republican Party, and then you have part of the Republican Party that's basically at peace with it and happy to move on. And and between them, they will propose various kinds of changes and try to push the program so that it looks more like their ideal of a good piece of public policy. But you want to have this knockdown drag out war. The opposite happens. It becomes, you know, the sort of singular policy obsession in domestic policy for the Republican Party. Um, and, and it really just, it comes to dominate politics in a way that I don't think there's really a precedent for in this particular circumstance. Um, you know, it's the rallying cry. Is the, you know, it becomes almost, it, it, it takes on a cultural political importance pretty far removed from the actual policy. Which is in part why I think, and, 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 and part of the reason I say that is, if you think about it, I mean, this was, after all, a plan based on something that a Republican governor crafted and signed that was praised by a number of conservatives and Republicans at the time. And, you know, maybe that didn't mean they were, any of them were going to actually support it, but surely it meant they weren't going to sort of, you know, fight it as, you know, the worst thing ever. And yet that's what it was. It became the worst thing ever. And not only, you know, were they against it, but it became it came to dominate Republican politics in ways that a lot of Republican leaders found difficult to control. I mean, I thought it was very telling. Uh, in the book, you may remember, I quote a leadership aide uh, who had worked for John Boehner and then for uh, Paul Ryan, basically saying, you know, look, I think leadership, Republican leadership had a sense that this was not something that was ever in the end going to happen for us. We were never going to successfully repeal it. And it was not actually, you know, it, it worked as a fundraiser, et cetera. But like, at some point, you actually did want to do other things and was getting in the way, right? Because like, anything that touched healthcare, even tangentially, had to become a repeal vote. So you couldn't do anything on it. And, but at that point, the party like they had gotten in such a cycle of outrage, right? You know, you got you elected people who were promising to repeal Obamacare. Now they had to show they were trying to repeal Obamacare, and they would do anything to repeal, and they wouldn't support it in any possible way. And anyone who even did something thinking of fixing it was like in trouble. In fact, this was an issue. There were a number of times you had 
Republican members like Eric Cantor, who's, you know, pretty conservative, you know, coming up with proposals that would have made changes in the program, conservative changes that would have sat very well with a lot of conservatives and certainly would have played well with the business uh, supporters, and where they had to back off of that because it was seen as fixing Obamacare. And you couldn't fix it because it, by definition, it was beyond fixing and you had to get rid of it. And I think this just outrage cycle just built. And and and, and one other uh, uh, dynamic going on was, I think, a change in the sort of incentives on the Republican side. And actually, I'd be very curious to know if this is true at the state level, but certainly at the national level, it seems like it's gotten to a point where political currency has changed. And so, you know, it used to be, if you're a member of Congress, how do you get power? Well, you, well, you deliver legislation, right? You deliver benefits for your constituents. That's how you had, that was capital, that was currency. Well, now, at least on the Republican side, how do you get, what's currency? Currency is showing up on Hannity, right? You know, it's, it's having viral social media that sort of gins up your supporters and brings in the donations from groups that are funded by the Koch brothers. And it feeds on itself and it kind of keeps this passion, I think, alive in a way that, you know, kept it as a dominant, to answer your question from three hours ago when I went on my little rant here, um, kept it as such a defining cause. Yeah, I mean, so, you know, we have legal challenges. We have 60 or dozens of votes in the legislature to repeal. We have other things. And then, but then the big thing happens. Then um, they get a trifecta of a Republican president and Congress that makes repeal possible, maybe even likely. Um, I, I guess, you know, part of my question is that I, I did think until then, and I was talking with some of the people interviewed in, in, in your book about, you know, if, if they weren't so obsessed with repealing, they would have been able to do some real damage to the, to, to the core of, uh, of the law. And, um, but when they did have full control, then all bets were off. What did you think when there was, um, when that election happened of, of President Trump and, and what happened on the Republican side and how much does it mirror what happened with trying to pass the ACA? Yeah, yeah. So I, I, full disclosure, I did not expect the ACA to survive. I, I like most people, thought it was most likely gone. Um, as I note in the book, that was there were two people in the White House who did not believe that. Um, one of them was Barack Obama. Although I'm not sure how much he genuinely believed it, because, you know, he's such an optimist, right? I mean, he's, of course, going to project this confidence. Um, but also, uh, one of his top advisors, who I think you know, Gene Lambrew, um, who is now actually Secretary of Health for the state of Maine, um, but at the time was in the White House and was the deputy assistant in charge of health policy. And, and, and uh, you know, at one point, the day after the election, the morning after the election, and, and the White House is like a morgue, right? Because they're all, you know, Trump's been elected. She actually calls in a bunch of uh, staff and she passes around some beers. And she's like, who thinks the Affordable Care Act is still going to be alive when a year from now? And nobody does except she does. And her, her logic is the same that Obama would, would make in his arguments is that Republicans have been saying they're going to repeal this, and they've been promising all these great results, but they've never had to actually deal with any real-world consequences. You know, they haven't, you know, actually had to defend an actual proposal. And that's when it gets real. And, of course, she knew that because she'd been through it. And it becomes very clear, right, very quickly, that they basically had not done their homework. 
Um, you know, we were talking a little bit earlier. Democrats spent like 10 years preparing for 2009. And they like, they built a consensus. They worked out the numbers. They, they had all these meetings. Again, you were in the middle of some of these, you know, all these meetings with outside activist groups and interest groups and stakeholders. And inside Congress, like, you know, Ted Kennedy and Max Baucus are like meeting and Henry Waxman and there are, you know, John Dingell, they're meeting with members, other Democrats, like, what can you live with? I mean, they were doing so much of the work before Obama got elected that by the time he gets elected and they try to push it, you know, they've agreed on a basic framework for better or worse, by the way. I mean, you know, obviously locking into that framework, locked into a model that a lot of people would say wasn't very good. But, you know, they did. They, they, they had agreed on a model. They, they worked out. They had a sense of what they were doing. The, the people invested this. They knew where the landmines were already, at least some of them. So they were ready for them. They had the messaging down. They, and even then, it was almost impossible to do. But they'd done that work. Republicans had done none of that. I mean, there were a couple of conservative intellectuals very serious about this, doing their proposals. And you had one or two, you know, a handful of lawmakers like Orrin Hatch, who, you know, does healthcare, and Tom Price, who would become Trump's HHS secretary. They had bills. But it was nothing like the level of activity on the Democratic side. And it meant just as a mechanical thing, they weren't ready to do, like, you know, to sort of organize themselves. And they were all over the place and they were divided in ways the Democrats weren't. But I also think it, it, it reflected the fact that their rhetoric had gotten way far away from what they were actually proposing. And so, you know, Trump was the ultimate example of this because he's running around saying, we'll have great insurance for everybody. But everyone knew that the Republican plans on offer actually were going to mean millions of people losing coverage. And, you know, if you're a conservative, you could totally defend that. I mean, you could make it, I, I, I could make a conservative case for any one of their proposals. Why, if I have conservative beliefs, this makes more sense. It's better for society, whatever. The, but you can't say it's going to insure more people because that's just not going to happen. And this contradiction, they've been sort of pretending it didn't exist. And now they can't pretend anymore. And, and I think that caught up with them. Yeah, although... It, it took a while to catch up to them. I mean, I think one of the remarkable things about that effort was that, you know, you um, by the time that we were at the House votes and Senate votes, um, I think it was down to polling at like something like 17 percent. No major industry was in support and many were opposed. It, 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 it um, there was, you know, concern from governors and others, you know, including within the Republican Party. There was no sort of obvious constituent from a political science point of view um if you said i have a proposal that takes away benefits that is is polling underwater that has no interest groups in support of it um why was it such a close vote so i think here is when we get back to what we were talking about at the top which is the basic dysfunctions of american politics today Uh, and and specifically when i say dysfunctions i mean the sort of accountability uh, uh, the, 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 part, the structures that are supposed to make elected officials democratically accountable aren't working anymore. Um, and I'm obviously not the first person to say, person to say that. Um, you know, uh, people like Norm Ornstein have been writing about this. Ezra Klein has done a ton on this, you know, how the, the political feedback loop seems to be broken. Um, and I think a big part of that, and, and we're certainly seeing that today, with what the Biden administration is going through in trying to pass its COVID bill and, and looking ahead to further down the line and whatever's next on its agenda. Um, you know, right now, conservatives are insulated 
from political accountability by a number of factors. Um, partly, they have a closed media universe that speaks to their followers that is increasingly just divorced from reality. Um, and I think that's part of the reason why repeal got as far as it did was if you only watched Fox News, you had no idea that anybody in America actually thought Obamacare was good. And, 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 and to be clear, there are lots of people who don't think it was good. And, 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 and hopefully I was careful in the book to give the pros and the cons. But you got a very I actually I mean, after interviewing at the time, Republican members of Congress, I used to think when they would say no one will not, no one will care if Obamacare goes away. I used to think they were all just they knew they were lying. I actually came to believe a lot of them believed that. Because if you watch Fox News, that's what you would believe. So you have this sort of dedicated media universe that speaks to just your base, that basically spins a different version of reality. And then we have the structures of American politics that allow you to win elections when you only have a minority behind you. Um, and that's a combination of factors, obviously, gerrymandering is part of that. Um, uh, uh, but, you know, the single biggest, I think, is the United States Senate and the way right now the small state bias because of geography and where people live and where certain kinds of voters live gives the Republicans a leg up. They can basically and we've seen this in the Electoral College, which is, of course, based on the Senate count, um, uh, uh, partly, uh, you know, uh, people like Nate Silver have, have studied this and, and put numbers on it. But basically, Republicans enjoy a, a, an advantage of several percentage points. They can be on the unpopular side of an issue and still survive politically. You throw in the sort of reinforcing uh, uh, factor of money in politics, which on the right wing side is very ideological, very much pushing the sort of fight, 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 and is also very much against the welfare state. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, there, and, and, you know, I just, they were both not afraid of the backlash. And also, I think somewhat, some of them scared not to go ahead because they've been promising it for so long. Yeah. The, so, I mean, and I think that your book is eminently fair, maybe even too fair to the different um, positions, but, but let's go back because you're, we've talked a lot about the politics, but as you said, you're a policy journalist. And actually, I think the, the real asset to the book is how much it does well in describing really sometimes complicated health policy in simple, in, in easy to understand terms. So what did the ACA, what was the problem that the ACA tried to solve and did it do so? Ah, so, I mean, the ACA tried to solve a lot of problems, obviously. Um, its number one task was to make healthcare affordable for every American, to make it a right like it is in every other developed country. And to do that by getting as many people as possible, getting insurance to as many people as possible, and setting up a standard, a kind of floor for insurance, uh, so that if you had insurance, you could trust that it would be there when you needed it. Um, a secondary uh, goal was to reduce the cost of healthcare over time so that it was less of a burden on society as a whole, which would translate down to less of a burden on, on government budgets, less of a burden on employers, and ultimately less of a burden on individuals. Now, I say that was a secondary goal because I think at the end of the day, it did less on cost, a lot less on cost than it did on coverage. Um, I always, but you know, there's a sort of, you hear people sometimes say, Democrats, you know, Obama, he didn't really care about the cost of healthcare. He really did care, like a lot. 
And like he had advisors like Peter Orsag who were passionate about this. And frankly, if they weren't so passionate about it, they'd probably been a little more willing to kind of let the money flow. I mean, there was complicated reasons why they were sort of didn't want to spend more money. A lot of it was political. Like I think you would have gotten a better product in the end, which gets me to to you know your question of how well did it achieve its goals. I mean, we still have millions of people who don't have health insurance. Um, we have millions of people who have health insurance and are looking at premiums or deductibles that are are prohibitive or at least high enough that they like they have to think twice about getting medical care they need. Um, some of them are people buying coverage through, you know, the exchanges. So that's, you know, covered California, if you're in California or healthcare.gov, if you're in like most of the states and you don't have an exchange that your state runs. So in that sense, you know, that's, that's, you know, a place where it didn't succeed. On the other hand, um, the number of people without health insurance is at or near historic low. It did tick up a little bit during the Trump years, but not by that much, which I think speaks to the resiliency of the program. Um, we know that you know lots of people got coverage and are better off for it, especially people who got Medicaid, um, which was sort of you know the sleeper issue during the debate about the ACA, but you know has been so responsible for coverage. And again, California is like a poster child for that, right? And um, so you know, I mean. You can look at at what it didn't accomplish, but I think you also have to look at the enormous accomplishment it did make. Yeah, um, talk a little bit about California, and uh, and the, we're in the homes, we're in California. Talk about California's role in this debate. Yeah, so uh, again, you know this better than I do. I learned a lot of this from you, um, but California has always been at the vanguard of healthcare reform historically for a long time, uh, back in the nineties. When Clinton was running, you know, doing healthcare reform, his actually the basis for his plan was something that was born in California. Um, uh, before Obama got elected, when Massachusetts was trying to pa- passing its state plan that became a prototype for the ACA, there was one other state that was really far along. And again, you know the story better than I do, but uh, California was the other state and was very close. And Arnold Schwarzenegger was the governor, and it, Fell apart at the you know at the end. Financing, as usual, was was a big issue. And that's always where these things get tripped up. Um, but uh, as soon as the ACA becomes law, California like jumps in. Like great, now you know the money's there. We're going to do this. Expanded Medicaid, you know, uh, which a lot of states didn't do after the Supreme Court made it easy to, you know, not take that money. Um, so expanded Medicaid. Um, and also, in terms of running an exchange, really took an aggressive approach and, and, and recognized that to make, you know, the whole premise of the ACA for middle, for, you know, for the sort of group of people who are above, you know, the poverty line, middle class people buying coverage on your own is to set up these exchanges, these markets where insurers are competing for business and you get subsidies. The theory is that you want to make it easy for people to shop and compare, and that's all well and good. But it actually turns out to be pretty hard to do. Uh, California has been had leaders working on the people like Peter Lee, uh, head of the exchange, who understood that if you want to actually make a comp- competitive market work, you actually have to manage that market pretty aggressively. And so I, I always thought, you know, uh, it was very important, for example, there was standardization of benefits, you know, and, and there's a lot of literature on this, right? There is such a thing as too much choice. You don't want people picking from a hundred different varieties of insurance because who the heck can knows how to compare a hundred? 
you want a sort of much smaller set so you can say, okay, there, this is what a bronze plan is like, and this is what a gold plan is like. And um, you know, now I can compare things like, well, who's on what doctor network or which gets better consumer ratings. So they did things like that. There was some, they paid more attention to regulating what the actual insurers would charge and, and, and not just let them charge whatever they want. And in learning, you know, a lot of states, it was really kind of the wild west and insurers could charge whatever they wanted. And really what, what, what ended up, that caused a lot of problems, mostly because insurers were undercharging early. They were, you know, they, they didn't guess right and, and they wanted to gobble a business and then lose, lost a ton of money and ended up just running away, which was like the worst of all worlds. Right. No, I think, I think that uh, that's right. I, I, we had a question about whether Calvary, California is the best state exchange in the country. Uh, um, and, you know, one of the reasons why I think it's at least in contention is because it, it has that active purchasing bargaining power. I don't know if you have a comment on that. Um, I, would, I would say that California has a great history of trying health reforms, but um, many of those reforms did not pass, whether it was the Garamendi proposals of the Clinton era or uh, other efforts at single payer, at employer mandates. Um, the one thing that did go through was uh, something in the city and county of San Francisco by then um, Mayor Gavin Newsom. Um, so again, some of these names keep popping up in, in these health policy debates. Um, but I would, but I, I, but to this point, so what's next for health, health reform? Um, because I do think one of the reasons why California was able to succeed with the ACA where these previous efforts felt was because we had a federal framework and financing to move forward. And so, the, so, so the, the question is, um, you know, one of our question, questioners asks, like, how do we get to universal coverage that, you know, this debate that has been resolved in almost every other developed country. And so, you know, what's next at either the state or federal level, um, you know, now that we've been through this 10-year war, and I don't know if you think that the 10-year war is continuing or if we're in a different stage. Yeah. Um, you know, I think, you know, insofar as the 10-year war was about the existence of the Affordable Care Act, I kind of think that debate is kind of over with two key asterisks I'm going to put on that. First asterisk is that there is right now a case in front of the U.S. Supreme Court. I mean, in theory, the Supreme Court could strike down the whole law tomorrow because um, that's what the lawsuit asks. I mean, it's a bonkers case, and that's a legal term, bonkers. Um, I mean, legal experts who supported previous lawsuits think it's got no merit. If you listen to oral arguments, I counted at least three Republican judges saying they were awfully skeptical of it, and presumably the three Democrats are also. But you never know. Supreme Court, they could do anything. Um, the other thing is that I've been wrong more than I've been right about how this debate's going to go. So, you know, I don't know if I'm really much for predictions. But I, I do think the fact that in the last two elections, Republicans were bending over backwards to say, hey, I support pre-existing, protecting people with pre-existing conditions, and I'm not going to yank insurance away from people. Um, whether or not they meant that, that's that's like the telltale sign that the politics have changed, and that's that's a form of security. So I think we will keep debating. I imagine this debate will soon move to where we debate about Medicare is now, in the sense that there will be a push from conservatives to change the program, to align it more with their values and their ideas of what works and what doesn't work. And they'll want less spending. They'll want more, you know, looser regulations on insurers. Um, some of them will be pushing to get rid of employer insurance. They don't like employer insurance and really set up a real 
everybody for themselves out there buying coverage. They won't call it repeal as much, I think, just because I think politically that's not useful for them anymore. And on the, you know, Democrats will, 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 will push to get to universal coverage. And obviously there's a debate within the Democratic Party how you do that. You know, um, there, some, you know, there's the argument we need to go for Medicare for all, you know, a single payer government system. Bernie Sanders has proposed this. Obviously, California's done version, you know, tried version, proposed versions of this where the government just insures everyone directly. And then on the other side, you have people who just want to build incrementally on the ACA. I actually personally think that those two positions are not as antithetical as they are sometimes presented to be. Um, I mean, you certainly have people on either end who are fairly absolutist. I mean, you have people who support Medicare for all and anything short of that is, is not even worth considering. Likewise, you have people who are incrementalists who think the idea of a government run insurance program covering everybody would be a disaster. But I think most of the party is somewhere in between. I, and, and, and I think this makes a lot of sense of thinking of Medicare for all, or, or as I like to say, Medicare for all or something very close to it, which could be one of the European systems where you might have a role for private insurance. But in general, it, it looks more like Medicare for all. Everyone gets coverage right away when they're born. It's, it's, it's a right of citizenship. There might be out-of-pocket costs, but they're low. Private insurance, if it's got a role, it's small and it's very tightly regulated. Basically, you want to get to something like that. And the question is, how do you, how do you get there and, and what are the paths there? And I try to remind people, if you're thinking about Medicare for all as an ideal, it, it's actually a group of building blocks, right? And you can work on sort of any of them. So what's one characteristic of Medicare for all? Well, one is that you have very few out-of-pocket costs. So I think that's somewhere where we can see progress and we are seeing progress. Obviously, California has already acted on the exchange to make the plans more affordable. We now see something in Washington as part of the COVID bill to do the same thing nationally. Now, that's a temporary uh, two-year boost, but the hope is to kind of come back and then make that permanent. So, you know, you can work on making insurance, you know, more affordable for everyone. And, and you, can, you can both do that, you know, within the exchanges and also for people who have employer coverage. Another way to go is to sort of get the government more involved in the price of care. And, you know, you can do that through surprise billing legislation. Um, you know, I kind of feel like if I had to make a prediction where I think we'll see some action or at least debate is on prescription drugs, because there's momentum behind that. We've been debating that for a while. That was like one of the more interesting underappreciated uh, stories of the Trump era was the extent to which the Trump White House was flirting with some stuff and actually did in the end do some regulations that were frankly to the left of where a lot of Democrats were in terms of getting the government involved in drug pricing. Now it was the Trump administration and the regulations were written badly and they're going to get, you know, knocked out by the courts. But like there's something in the air. You could imagine some progress in getting the government involved in drug pricing, which is what happens overseas. So I feel like that for the immediate future is the most likely path forward with the idea that everyone is kind of moving to a system that looks more like Medicare for all. No, and California is an example of that at the state level where we have an active single payer bill, AB 1400 by some South Bay uh, assembly members, uh, it, but also active efforts to expand Medi-Cal, to, to, to increase subsidies in, the, in exchange, to, to, to deal with cost containment in, in a variety of ways. Uh, and I think, but, but to go back to the national level, if there's one change that you would make to the ACA, this is a questioner, um, to make it be better or to fix it, what would it be? 
Um, so I would actually do what the Biden administration is, tr- is starting to do right now. I would make it's it's a sort of two parter. I would make the policies and the exchange more affordable, and you do that by throw. This is this is not a complicated thing to fix. You throw money at the problem. Um, the the program was underfunded from the beginning. It was underfunded primarily for political reasons. Um, there was pressure not to spend too much money. They were and even to the extent they were willing to spend money, they had to offset it all, and that limited what they were able to do. And I think there's a recognition that because it was underfunded, you get this position where middle class people, you're making fifty, sixty thousand dollars a year as a single, or like ninety thousand or a hundred, ten thousand as a as a couple, as a family, before, um, especially if you're in some higher cost parts of the country, that's not a lot of money. But you know, the insurance is really expensive. So uh throw money at the program to make those policies more affordable is part one. And then part two. And this is really important, and this is something Biden has endorsed that's gotten very little attention. I will be interested to see if they try to push ahead on this later. Open those policies even to people who have employer coverage available. Because there's a big problem, especially in some lower income uh, and lower paying uh, work uh, jobs, where you have people who technically have employer coverage available to them, but it's very expensive. And the policies have big deductibles. And they end up not taking the insurance. Um, or they fall into what's known as the family glitch, uh, which is because of how the IRS, how, how the different funding formulas count your income and what you're eligible for. Allowing anyone to jump into the exchanges, especially if they get more uh, more financial assistance in them, becomes a way to deliver relief to people who have employer coverage, which is not something the ACA did in a big way. Now, as anybody who's lived through the politics of healthcare knows, the second you touch employer coverage, you're into a whole new minefield. And it doesn't matter if what you're offering is is, is beneficial to people, um, you will be accused of tearing down employer coverage. So you, you actually need to work out how you're going to explain and defend that. I think it's possible to do. Bernie Sanders often does a very good job of this, for example. But it's something that, that you know, you, you have to be wary of. If the Republicans were ever to repeal the ACA, how do you think the public would actually react to that? So my sense, um, based, you know, if you want to like play out the hypothetical, let's pretend John McCain walks in to the Senate floor and instead of going thumbs down, he goes thumbs up. Right. Which, by the way, is how you open the book in a very dramatic way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it was, I mean, I don't know about you. That was like one of the most dramatic moments I've ever seen in politics because it was completely unpredictable. And I remember like falling in real time with tweets and just it was it was remarkable. I mean, it doesn't right there with you. Not usually how Senate votes work. Um, so, so McCain says thumbs up. There's a Senate bill. They they negotiate with the House and they end up passing something. And you know, presumably, it looks different than what's already on offer. But basically, let's say you know, there millions of people lose coverage and pre-existing condition protections get weakened or go away. Um, I think there would have been a big backlash. Now, there already was a big backlash. I mean, it's pretty clear that one reason. Republicans uh, lost control of the House in 2010 uh, was that the healthcare backlash. I mean, I, I live in Michigan, and one district north of me uh, is a very Republican-leaning district where a Democrat picked up the seat, Alyssa Slotkin. And like, and I talk about this in the book. I mean, she was a healthcare candidate. Her whole shtick, she ran an ad about her mother who had cancer and a pre-existing condition, and it just the the uh, Republican incumbent had no answers. And so I think. Uh, they would have, you know, 
really suffered a, a major backlash. And now the interesting question is then what? You know, would they have decided to sort of amend it and come up with something else? What would they have done? I don't know. Um, I think it would have been damaging. Um, I would say I would think it would be even more damaging than what actually happened, except what, I mean, they suffered, like, it's hard to imagine them suffering a bigger defeat than they did in 2010. Um, so, you know, who knows? But I definitely think the politics of, of the Affordable Care Act, and this is one of the reasons I finally wrote the book, I, I mean, I feel like they've settled now, and it's pretty clear where the public is. I mean, the public is not thrilled with American health care, it's not thrilled with the Affordable Care Act, but it definitely does not want to go back. Like, that is not something people want to do. And changing that and going back would, would, would incur severe political consequences. Yeah, no, that backlash in California, there were, there were 14 Republican members of our, de- of our 53-member delegation. It went down to seven, so exactly half, all seven, including four in Orange County. You've been following this issue, and so this is the inverse of my first question, which is, since so, somebody who's been following this, what did you learn in the reporting of the book that, you didn't, that surprised you in the, doing the reporting in, in going through this, uh, re- re-reporting and doing the interviews that you did? You know, I think it goes back a little bit to what I was saying before about the role of individuals, but not just their character, which is what we were talking about before, but um, how much uh, when you're in a close vote like this, you know, a, close, a closely fought issue like this, how much chance and luck and, and bad decision-making can affect the outcome. I mean, that was something else that, you know, it, it, it was amazing to me. And I, I do actually remember this in real time reporting when the ACA was passing. And, and I would talk to staff, you know, on Capitol Hill. And I know I, I'd never covered a legislative process that closely before. So this was new to me. Again, you may know this that already. And so you didn't need to have me report this. But I just sort of assumed everybody, like there were these sort of well-known facts that everybody shared behind the scenes and they just weren't telling me the reporter, but like everyone was operating the same set of facts and they all understood what each other was saying and it was all sort of predetermined. And actually it turns out that no, everyone's in their own little silo. They have information, their little, they have their perspective and their information. They don't know what's happening in the office down the hall, let alone on the other side of Washington. And just that general, there's a fog of war that happens in legislation that I didn't realize that ends up, and, and in general, I think it serves to deter action just because passing anything, passing legislation is complex. Passing healthcare legislation is really complex. And so fog of war is one more problem to overcome. Yeah. Who knew healthcare is so complicated as, uh, as the, the famous presidential quote from President Trump? Um, you, you mentioned this book, and I think this is one of the things I took away, which is just how much divorced the public conversation is about these big bills, where, you know, if you were, it it, it seems to me that if you were following the ACA, the debates were about death panels, if you were in one part of the country, or about the public option, if you're in another, if if you're in another community, but that, uh, how much the inside debate within Congress was about affordability assistance, which was, or about some of these other um, questions that, or funding, regional funding formulas. And I guess, I mean, how do we correct that where there is such a, a public conversation that is actually unrelated to what's actually going on in Congress? Um, that is a good question. I do not have a great answer on that. Um, uh, you know, it's hard to convey, you know, it's hard to convey policy substance that's at all nuanced 
to the public in general, it's harder now because of the way the media environment is as polarized as politics in general. Um, I would also say there's a reverse phenomenon that needs attention, which is that um, uh, politicians can become insulated from what uh, their constituents actually want. Um, I, I feel like, you know, looking back, I, I, I think I've tried to think a lot about things, you know, I wish I could redo. And I do, you know, in general, I think one of the advantages Democrats had was that they, we were talking about this before the preparations they made. I mean, they, they spent a lot of time with policy experts, right? And there's like a universe of like really smart, accomplished economists and health policy experts who were there every step of the way. Some of them went to work in the White House or Congress, and some of them were, you know, on the outside. And certainly that, I think overall, that was a net advantage, and it helped the Democrats in guiding their policy. But sometimes the wonks kind of miss the forest for the trees, and they get really into their sort of, you know, technical adjustments. And, and they can also be guilty of groupthink in the same way anybody else can. And, you know, the economists aren't always correct, <laughs> um, you know? And I think... You know, sometimes I think a lot about the fact about the debate about the individual mandate. And and if you go back to the very beginning of that, like that all starts in the 2007, 2008 campaign. And Obama doesn't want to do a mandate. Right. He's kind of against it. And, and his argument, he says, is, I don't know, like, I feel like people will want to buy the insurance if it's affordable and we shouldn't have to make them buy it if we don't know it's affordable. And basically, he ends up coming around for a variety of reasons part of which he's got a bunch of economists saying, no, you really need to do this. And, you know, he's like a brainy intellectual guy who hears the arguments and it makes sense to him because there's his research and literature. He's like, okay, I get that. And also it helped with the CBO score and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, at the end of the day, I mean, I think the jury's out on what effect the mandate has had and hasn't. And obviously it, it depends a lot on how strong the mandate is and, and, and whether it's enforced and there are factors that affect how strong you can make it. But, you know, I remember covering that issue in 2007 and 8 and I sort of took it as gospel that like mandate good, no mandate bad. And like you know, there's there's like there's gray area there and you can debate that. And 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 so, you know, I think there's room for everybody to kind of keep an open mind about these things in a way that, you know, maybe they have it myself included. So last question, and I think this goes to this question of what was the the, the issue that the ACA was trying to solve? You answered the policy answer. It was also trying to solve a political question, which is how do you pass uh, uh, health care reform in the United States, given the political context and learning from the lessons of the past? Uh, and I think that's part of the thesis of your book is just how much the ACA was crafted by the past lessons of failed efforts before. before. And so I'd be curious, as you wrap up, what lessons would you have for would-be reformers going forward? from the experience of the ACA and the unfinished crusade to universal coverage. Yeah. Um, I mean, it was absolutely, I mean, that, that, you know, I always sort of say, I mean, I, I, I think the ACA is the product of these decades long quest for universal coverage crashing into the recognition that nothing had gotten through Congress before and they needed to figure out some way to accomplish that. And they did. And however flawed However inadequate the ACA is, you kind of just have to recognize that they did something no one else had been able to do before. And that's like a major accomplishment. Now, all that said, um, I also think it was built around a set of political assumptions about how 
where the parties are, how the governing process works, and those assumptions no longer apply. I think we live in a different world where you cannot assume that by adopting, if you're a liberal and you adopt a conservative, you know, policy with conservative elements that Republicans once, some Republicans once endorsed, you can no longer assume that will actually get you some Republican buy-in. And you cannot assume that once the law is passed, you'll be able to work on modifying and improving it the way we did Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid. Um, you cannot assume the political accountability mechanisms will reward you in the way they normally would in a normally functioning democracy, and you have to account for that. And, 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 and long term, you got to fix those problems. And in the short term, you have to somehow deal with them because I, I just, you know, it, it, it makes it very difficult to do the hard things that Obama was talking about doing. Yeah, no, it's a, it, it's, a, d- this is hard, but I think, are you optimistic about the future of healthcare? Or pessimistic, or pessimistic given everything that you've chronicled? Um, I'm, I'm like a fundamentally optimistic person, hopelessly, so I'm optimistic. Um, I don't know, I don't know I have a lot of grounds for being optimistic. But I am an optimist, and I, you know, I and I look at the fact that at the end of the day, the ACA passed and is still standing, and which tells me that the accountability systems are broken, but not completely broken, and that you know, doing something that helped a lot of people, however imperfectly it did so, is meaningful and has achieved something, and 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 has benefited a lot of people. I mean, you know, at the end of the day, that's what this is about. A lot of people are better off, not, you know, and, and, and that makes a difference. So that makes me optimistic. You know, we did it before. We can do it again. Uh, maybe, and if, maybe if we're clever and we put in the work, we can even do it in a way that's even better going forward. What's your next project as we end? Oh, God. Um, uh, you know, I, I, I have been covering, uh, a, a lot on the, you know, like everyone else, I've been writing about the pandemic, which has obvious intersections with healthcare. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I, I spend a lot of time thinking about those intersections and so maybe something in that universe going forward, hopefully not a, you know, someone said, oh, you know, cause my first book was on the problems in the healthcare system. The second book was on trying to fix those problems. So someone asked me if there's going to be a trilogy. No, no, no return of the Jedi. This is, this is what we get. All right. Well, Jonathan Cohn, it's just been great to talk with you. You've uh, uh, your first book sick was a, uh, one of the important seminal works that helped set the stage for the conversation about health reform. Um, Your current book, the 10 year war Obamacare and the unfinished crusade for universal coverage is, the, is a definitive history of the history we've all lived through for the last decade. Um, if you have been following this, it's a, it's a great refresher and read to, to experience it. If you have not um, been following it, it's, it's, it's a great example of what, uh, for any student of not just healthcare, but of politics and policy. So just I want to thank Jonathan Cohn, a reporter for HuffPost, for joining us today. I would love to thank our audience for watching and participating live. If you'd like to watch more programs or support the Commonwealth Club's effort in making virtual programming, please visit commonwealthclub.org slash online. I'm Anthony Wright, Executive Director of Health Access California. Thank you and stay safe and healthy. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. 
Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org slash donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.